For joining us for another episode of Tales from the Doghouse Separation Anxiety Explained. I am Stacy Bell in the US with Focused Fun. And with me is. I'm Ness Jones. I am in Australia with Separation Anxiety in Dogs Decoders. <laughs> Sarah's with us, I promise. and you've got a very confused Sarah McLaren in the UK from Separation Anxiety Solutions Uh, my apologies people I'm using my husband's laptop and it's not a touch screen so I was basically trying to touch the screen to say that we could start recording only realising that it's not a touch screen (laughs) (laughs) sorry 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 I'm being my usual nutty self anyway today what we're talking about today kiddies um Today we're talking about, in a sort of roundabout fashion, the amount of training or the amount of hours it takes to get good at something. So one of the things that we talk about most of the time in separation anxiety training is that we do desensitization training and it takes time and it takes repetition and the more repetition you can do and the more good um anxiety free departures you can do the better so one of the books that i read some time ago is a book called bounce by a chap called matthew syed and the book basically talks about how in order to become an expert something takes approximately ten thousand hours so we were thinking about how we can transfer that into separation anxiety training so has anybody got any thoughts? So I know that Stacey's got a small version of the book and she's been reading it. <laughs> yes, I actually read it today, this very day, so it's very fresh in my mind. Um, um, I guess for me, it was, the, the book was kind of interesting because it talked about um, talent not being so much of a factor as uh, just getting the repetitions in. And so kind of what I was thinking about when trying to relate it to separation anxiety training is granted, we have a whole nother element when we're training um, for comfortable home alone absences, because we have that emotional element that the dog has a negative um, experience of being home alone, right? So setting that aside, just thinking about the number of repetitions it takes for a dog to kind of learn to be or to achieve that goal of being home alone comfortably. Um, And um, kind of then putting in the the neuro pathways of uh, getting more and more established and that sort of thing. So um, the book resonated in that uh, respect for sure it's interesting because there's another book called uh, the talent code have either of you read that no so no. the talent code is by a fellow called daniel Coyle, and it's very much the same i haven't read bounce but i looked at the sort of summary i'm not as 
I haven't looked at um, the same in-depth summary as what Stacey has, but the talent code is quite similar. It's talking about deep practice, which is, I guess, what we do with dogs with separation anxiety. But I thought, and then you mentioned, Stacey, about the neural pathways, which is also really interesting because in the talent code, um, again, it's not, it's saying that we talk about talent, but actually all these people that are really skilled at something is actually because they've done deep practice and they there's a, a neural insulator called, now I'm going to get this wrong, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's myelin, so M-Y-E-L-I-N, myelin, um, which neurologists consider to be the holy grail of acquiring a skill. So just to really quickly summarise, because I think it really relates to your book, Bounce, um, that its vital role is to wrap those nerve fibres the same way that rubber insulates copper wire, um, which makes the signal stronger and faster by preventing electrical impulses from leaking out. So then we're firing the, the signals and the circuits in the right way. Um, the myelin responds by wrapping and insulating the neural circuits um, and each Yay. layer adding a bit more skill and speed. And so the thicker that the myelin gets, the better it insulates and the faster and more accurate our movements and thoughts become. And that just resonates with me in terms of separation anxiety because we've talked about this before. We've got those old neural pathways which we want to weaken um, where the dog feels being home alone is really, really scary. And then you've got the neural pathways where we're saying, no, being home alone is is good and it's safe and I, mm -hmm. I'm assuming this is where the myelin comes in that we're building up the thickness of that myelin to um to create you know success here and um yeah and and we just want to grow that and grow that so yeah I think I think again it really relates to bounce because we are talking about that deep practice yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they use the term deep practice and bounce, or at least they don't use it in um, in the Cliff Notes version. Um, but what was really interesting to me is that um, they were talking about when you're trying to master <clears throat> a new skill, that it's important to keep on challenging yourself to get better and to keep on learning from mistakes. So I think what a lot of people do, and they were talking about this too, is that you, you, when you initially start out, you practice really purposefully um, and you're trying to get your proficiency up and you know, do it right and all of these things. But then once you get to a certain point, whether that's um, a certain level of proficiency or you've reached a goal or you know, whatever, um, that people kind of lax in the way that they um, execute their practice. So they're, they're not pushing themselves to get beyond that point. So they're no longer growing. Um, <clears throat> so you're practicing what you know already and not pushing yourself to um, learn more and perhaps make more mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And so I thought that was really interesting because, um, and, and there's certainly other things going around on with separation anxiety training. Um, but if you notice, like I notice a lot with my very new clients is that they're super excited to get started, um, to get the plan in place and um, learn how to do all the things. And then once they kind of um, have become proficient at that level, 
some of the um, novelty and excitement surrounding the training kind of plateaus or maybe goes downhill a little bit. And so then it's about um, keeping up with those goals and, and, you know, if there is some kind of blip in training or downturn in the dog's performance or ability to be home alone, just looking at that, not as a failure, but as a place to kind of learn, um, to become more familiar with, you know, what makes training easier or harder for the dog or, um, you know, what can you do to set up the dog for success? It's that thing as well, isn't it? A bit like, I mean, if, Back in the day when you used to train um, dogs, and obviously you still do train lots of dogs' nests um, and clients, is that your clients always think that you've got some super magical power because it looks easy to you, and you can do it easy easily, and you can train a behaviour easily, and and you know it looks like you've got some kind of mystical, magical Gandalf the Grey thing going on. <laughs> when all it is, well, all you know, you know that all it is is practice. You've not got some magical power. You've not got some natural dog talent. What you have got is an awful lot of hands-on practice, 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 practice. And you know that if it goes wrong, it's not because you can't do it or because it's, you know, it's never going to work. It's just that it needs more practice. And I think that's where, for our clients, like you say, you know, the novelty at the beginning is wonderful and marvellous. The fact that they're doing something is great. They feel like they're doing something. You know, they've got action behind them. They're actually getting moving. And then it goes wrong. And for them, it's we need to help them understand that this is not failure. It's not that they can't do it. It's just the dog needs more practice and the dog needs more practice at maybe a slightly lower level. And it's, it's that, I think, that we've got to get across. Um, the other thing I was thinking about in relationship to all this um, with separation anxiety is just learning body language, right? So it's, um, you know, I can watch a dog on a video and almost like tell you before I see a behavior that I could like expressively pick out that the dog is starting to get anxious, right? And so that just comes from hours of watching videos of dogs um, and some of them escalating into um, showing anxious behaviors. And, you know, it's not always something that you can put your finger on. And of course, you do try to pick that apart so you can coach your clients on what is the very first thing. But um, that is another thing that a lot of times we're asking our clients to be able to pick out. And um, of course we narrow it down for them and coach them on specific things to look for. So it's easier, but um, I think that's also a way that this all comes into play. Yeah. I was just thinking about, uh, I've had um, a number of newer clients recently that, that's made me think about this. This is where all this kind of came from was that they are trying to do uh, particularly clients that come to me who've been trying to do this on their own for some time already and then have decided that they need a little bit more support and a little bit more help because what they've been trying to do is they've been trying to follow a desensitization program and they've been doing a really good job but then they get to a point where they keep pushing it or they don't have the confidence to say do you know what today is not a day to train um, mm -hmm. and they you know they think that they must train three four five days a week and sometimes 
I feel from watching some clients that if you can get one good session in a week, that's better than four that are really not great or four that are maybe okay, but you're not sure or, you know, pushing it a little bit or, or you're being pushed for time or you're trying to do it at a time that doesn't fit, that we need to be able to help them develop the confidence to say, actually, today is a bad day. Yeah, and then if tomorrow is a bad day, to, to not do it tomorrow either. And then to remember that they also need to take time off with the dog. So that's another mm-hmm. thing I'm finding. If for people who are, especially now that they're going back to work, that they're struggling with, oh, well, I need to go back to work. So that means I'm not going to take my normal day. I'm not going to take a day off on a Saturday or a Sunday. We're going to train because I want to, you know, catch up on the days that I've missed out on. And then they're not getting any fun time with the dog. They're not getting any together time or remembering the reason why they got them in the first place. Mm, yeah, I think I think because they allot that time, because that's all the time they've got, and then they think and then maybe the dog's having an off day it's not really feeling it and they're like well this is the time I allotted I have to do this training even though it's probably undermining their training yeah Mm -hmm. I have a new client who was experiencing this exact thing um she is temporarily living with her parents and her and you know finding a time when her parents are out of the house and she doesn't want to inconvenience them or ask too much because they already do so much to um, help support her and her dog that she's she is having some of that pressure but I was so proud of her because um, we were having like kind of a catch-up zoom session and she just she she realized that herself you know that she was pushing a bit when she knew like that it wasn't really the best thing for her dog to be training in that certain circumstance or that day or whatever Mm. so um so anyways I was I was really proud of her I think sometimes as well is that they do realize that they're pushing it and that's the thing you know you'll quite often get someone will say to you you know I don't think they did that well so I've marked it as an okay exercise rather than they did really well exercise but it's giving them that confidence to go actually if it's not going okay then just stop yeah yeah rather, rather than just stopping they're still they're still trying to do that okay exercise rather than just stopping and then maybe doing an a state a fantastic one the following day right right well and i think the benefit of having somebody walking aside alongside with them is that we can then help them say you know if he's barking during warm-ups that's a pretty good indication that you should just quit there you know sometimes it it takes somebody who's not so close to it and, and somebody who has more experience to be just like you know that is a good indication that your dog is not in the in the frame of mind where an absence is going to be a positive thing and and I always try to to tell clients like bottom line our goal our primary goal is to give your dog a positive or neutral experience, right? Yeah. If we're not doing yeah. that, then the training is not teaching your dog what we want to teach your dog. So, you know, pushing that duration a bit further or training on a day or in a scenario that's not really the best for your dog is no good if they're not going to have a positive or neutral experience. Yeah, it's not about how much you train. It's, it's about quality over quantity so the quality should be good not the quantity and I think a lot that gets lost a lot um, yeah but we do also need the repetitions 
you yeah. know, so well, true, that. true. <laughs> so that's it's it's striking that balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a client, a new client, and uh, she sent her video in yesterday and it was the first time the dog barked in the warm-up. She got to step five and she went, the dog had barked. So she repeated it, barked again, repeated it, barked again, and then she's like, I'm not doing any more, which was the right move. Um, right. Yeah, but, um, yeah, and that dog had been doing pretty well in its previous sessions, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it could yeah. be anything that, that drives that, you know, particularly when you've had the ones that have had, you know, several days or several sessions that have all gone really, really well. And then all of a sudden one seems to come out of the blue that doesn't go well. And your client's thinking, you know, that it's all going horribly wrong or maybe it's not working or there's a problem or something. And it could be just that that dog's having a bad day or it could be something that the dog heard that you didn't hear or, you know, for whatever reason, something happened earlier on that day that you didn't see that's affected the dog later on in the day. You know, there's a whole, there's, there's a, a thousand reasons why it might not work. And I think one of the things that I spoke to my clients this week about was a, the, you know, the, the human need to ask why, why, oh, why, 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 so why, 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 <laughs> yeah, let's just not go there. It doesn't matter why all, all, all that matters is that today didn't go well so we stop and mm-hmm. we try again yeah. tomorrow or we make it easier tomorrow we just work on what we've got in front of us don't we but yeah the the why is another one unless it's there's so- something affecting the dog that yes we need to obvious why. <laughs> it feels better to know why you know to mm. have an explanation for why you didn't do well not only because you know we're thirsty for that but also you know, like this book is talking about is, is you can, you can only learn from the mistakes if you know why, right? Mm. Like if you don't know why it happened, then there's nothing to tweak for next time, except for the duration, like you're saying. But if we knew it was because he didn't get any walks for the last three days, then we just take him for a walk. (laughs) You know, we, we increase exercise and enrichment and then we're like, oh, yay now he's set up for success. So I totally get why. And, and I do think it's useful to take a look and see, you know, can I tell a quick why as to, to why this result happened? But if not, we still know what to do, don't we? Yeah. So, yeah, I get that. I'm a big why person. So I, I, that (laughs) resonates with me. It really resonates with me. I mean, yeah, and the thing is that we're, I, th- I think we're all the same in that when your client does have a, a day that's all of a sudden come out of the blue that didn't look good, you know, you, it's we ask them, you know, what do you think it might have been? Have you done anything different today? And they often say, mm-hmm. oh, no, I don't think so. And then two minutes later, we'll go, oh, we went to the vet. Well, would that make any difference? Or <laughs> we went to the groomers or um, yeah. he's got a run. He's, you know, he's been to the toilet 25 times this morning. Or the other <laughs> one this week is, of course, the clock's changed here. And yes. I've got clients who were trying to do exercises, certainly the ones who do it on a morning, that are suddenly doing it at, you know, a lot earlier than they were last week. And the dogs are like, eh? <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. reminding people of things like that, 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 we forget about very quickly as well. Especially dogs um, that are kept on a pretty strict routine. You know, it's, it's interesting as you interact with different people and different clients, you know, different people's takes on like 
having like some people have like a really like strict routine and I don't mean strict as in punishing but like to on the hour this is what we do it's all mapped out um, versus other people who are kind of looser with this schedule but I do think that dogs that are on that strict routine do struggle more with the um, with the time changes and whatnot because you know they're so used to doing the specific Mm. thing at a specific time Mm. it must be a lovely nest not to have your clocks changing yeah Yeah. i mean i'm in brisbane or queensland um so our clocks don't change but um they do in new south wales so um it can be a bit tricky when you've got clients interstate but yeah Mm. they're thinking in the u.s i think there was some uh legislation going through i don't know what all happened with it because you know it takes time but to to take away the time change they were supposed to be doing it i don't know if it was last year or not but then i don't know if it was brexit or the pandemic or but something got in the way <laughs> and delayed it and, and that you know so that's it now we're going to be it's going to be another five years before we uh, decide to stop mm. doing it but yeah i don't I, I don't think the reasons behind doing it in the first place i don't think exist anymore do they so it's not a yeah it's just been, And I think there's like um, some studies and stuff saying that it's like uh, detrimental to like your heart health and sleep patterns and makes the curtains fade. It's awful. (laughs) Just awful. That's the worst one. I can't Um, remember all of it. How can it be detrimental to the sleep patterns? I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, we're talking about an hour. Yeah, and it's for months and months and months. It's not like it's not like um, you know when you're doing shift work when your body clock is completely yes. thrown out left, right, and center. Um, but it but it takes you months to get well. It takes me months to get used to it. By the time I get used to it, the buggers change back again. It's like oh come <laughs> on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on on the person. I I don't have a a really. Uh, tight schedule so like I, it doesn't bother me much at all um I think it's worse but, if you've got alarm clocks if you've got to get up say if you get up at 7 a.m yes, every morning so yeah, if you've got I an alarm so. clock and you've got so I think that's when it becomes difficult but I mean I I haven't had an alarm for years I just wake up when I need oh, to wake up um, if the clock's changed here yeah correct me if I'm wrong if I'm on Sydney time I think I'd be this getting up an hour early. later, wouldn't I? So instead of getting up at 4.30 this morning to make this podcast, I'd be getting up at 5.30. <laughs> so you said that would be nice. You- but it would still that be 4.30. Be <laughs> <laughs> no, would it be 3.30? Because I'd have to get up at 4.30 to make 5.30, which means I'd have to actually get up at 3.30. Is that right? Is that would that be in autumn when they went the other way? I think it's when they go back in it. Oh, I don't know. I get confused with it all. Either way, I think it is. It it doesn't. It has a knock on somewhere. Unless you yeah. don't need alarms and you're not, you know, you, you've no time pressure to to. You know, I mean, I need to get up by a certain time, but I don't need an alarm in order to do so, regardless of clock changes. So that's good. Unlike when I used to do early shift and have to be at work for six o'clock. That was different. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, back in the day. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So, is um, there's a. 
I'm not quite sure what you call it. The 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 thing about when we um, feel incompetent about things, there's a little uh, paragraph about competence. Is that in the bounce book? Is that where I've got this from, which is about the unconscious incompetence when you don't know that you're doing it wrong, so it doesn't matter? Um, I, I know what you're talking about, like conscious competence and unconscious incompetence. There's like four of them. Um, yeah. I, my little summary book did not talk about that. Um, it did talk about, well, go ahead and talk about what you were going to talk about. And then I have another kind of drawing from that. Well, I suppose in, in regards to separation anxiety, there's the initial stage, which is the unconscious incompetence, which is where you might have a dog with separation anxiety, but you don't know you've got a dog with separation anxiety. So, you know, it, none of it means anything anyway. It doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't mean anything to anybody else. You're not conscious of it. So you don't feel like you're doing anything wrong. And then mm -hmm. the next stage in that is conscious incompetence, where you are fully aware that something somewhere is going horribly wrong. And that's a really, really difficult place to be in mentally because you're so aware that you, you know, or to you, you feel like you're cocking it up constantly and it's a really horrible place to be in. And then the next stage would be conscious competence, which is you are doing better at it. So that's the point where people are doing more exercises, isn't it? But they're very aware of what they're doing and they're very conscious of every move that they make and they're maybe not quite so fluent with the way that they do the exercises and they don't know when's a good time to stop or when is a good time to push or they just haven't got enough practice at it and then the final stage is unconscious competence where you are fluid with everything that you need to do you understand the process completely you've got a really good read on the dog's body language and you're very competent at building the exercises and performing them and adjusting them accordingly at any given time and that's where everybody wants to be at the stage of unconscious competence because then you no longer you know you, you've it's a bit like learning to drive isn't it where unconscious competence is when you don't think about where you're putting your feet or well right. certainly us, us over here and, and uh, in Aust Australia you have stick shift as well don't you are you we all automatic no we've got both yeah so, so we have to think about changing gears and things. I know that in America, not so much. <laughs> Maybe. They have both here, but I think most cars are automatic. I wish. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was uh, that was the uh, unconscious uh, unconscious competence bit. So, what was the bit in the um, in the book? Oh, this is a different subject. We're doing a subject okay. change. It's still All in right. the book, so it's like. Yeah, um, the book was talking about the um, ambition to succeed can be um, sparked by even like small circa or trivial circumstances. And so they talked about how, um, it, and the it's called motivation by association. And so when people find a similarity, even if it's like just a small one to um, a successful person or um, that it um, increases their confidence and motivates them to try harder. So this is where um, like maybe having a trainer or being part of a group like Ness has can be helpful because you have somebody there, you know, kind of motivating you to be more proficient um, at the whole training thing. Oh, that was interesting but it was it was interesting because it was even like 
um, uh, they, they were quoting a study and it was like um, this impossible to solve math problem and they fake, it could have been a real grad student, but fake solved the problem and had notes and gave it to the students. And on the notes was some information about her, which included the birthday. And they edited the birthday, her birthday, the grad student's birthday to be the same as the people taking the test. So each person had these notes with the birth, the shared birthday on it. And when the birthday was shared, which is like a small commonality, right? Like most people, like you, you might, you would pick it up, but you, it's not like that's one of the most defining things about a person, right? So anyways, but when they had the shared birthday on there and nothing else was changed, those people tried like, I'm going to say like 65% harder than the people who who had all the same stuff, but didn't have the shared birthday. So it just motivated them to stick with it and try harder. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I think that's like when thinking about it, just having, um, like I said, other people in a group like Ness's um, Facebook group or a um, coach or SA pro trainer, a behavior consultant, SA pro behavior consultant um, to help guide you through, I think can help keep your um, motivation going longer um, in just- addition to other things, but. Can I just sidetrack for one second, um, talking about my Facebook group, which is Separation Anxiety and Dogs Decoded, if anybody wants mm. to join. And we have over 1,200 members now, which is Woo! very Yeah. But interesting, I did a poll the other day um, about, um, and this was raised because um, Cammy in my group um, put a, a post up, which was very heartfelt, and a lot of people commented on it. Um, saying that she wished there was therapy for pet parents to dogs that have behavioural issues and separation anxiety, and sometimes I feel lost. So I did a poll um, just out of curiosity, um, and the question was, how many of you suffer from anxiety alongside your dog? Um, So the three answers were, yes, I had anxiety before my dog came along. No, I didn't have anxiety until my dog started suffering from SA. And the third one was, no, I don't have anxiety at all. I just want my dog to recover. And um, there haven't been that many votes, but um, the majority were, yes, I had anxiety before my dog came along, which I find quite interesting. And I feel like we should maybe do a podcast episode on that one at some point. Didn't Um, we? Well, we've touched on it, but I, I don't think we've done anything specifically about that. Uh, yeah, um, one of, it's funny, funny you should mention that because one of my clients this morning sent me a, a message to say if there was anything that I could, any advice I could give her with regards to anxiety and whether, you know, her, you know, whether she was um, making a dog more anxious or whether, you know, how it was sort of like going backwards and forwards. And I did actually point her at one of our podcasts that we did some time ago now, which was about uh, stress, more, more towards stressing dogs, but we did talk a little bit about stress in people as well and or anxiety in people as well and 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 the the relationship between the two um but yeah it's uh i think we definitely need some um pet parent shrinks out there more of them Mm. so meditation we could do a meditation app you know like you can get the meditation apps just in general maybe we could do a doggy one that's a good idea Mm. yeah Uh, uh, 
is it mind which is the one that's is it mindful mm. i'm advertising apps now i know there is an app i'm mentioning no names <laughs> that, helps you, <laughs> that helps you meditate so we should find a, a separation anxiety doggy anti-anxiety app maybe for dogs or for people nice. i'm not quite sure now nice, nice. <laughs> we meditate together Yay. Yeah. the parallel between the the needing to practice something and it's nothing to do with talent really it's more to do it's to do with doing something over and over and over and over and over and over again until mm -hmm. you get to a point where it becomes almost second nature or at least you don't have to think about it anymore or have to worry about it anymore which is mm -hmm. pretty much what we're doing with our dogs which is getting them to the point where they no longer have to worry about us leaving because they've done that much practice at being on their own that it's no longer a problem yeah and I think um I mean again that touches on the talent code as well it's it's I, I feel like it's quality of practice like we were mm -hmm. talking about not quantity mm -hmm. but obviously quantity plays a factor but yeah the the you have to practice it over and over again but you have to practice it in the right way yeah mm -hmm. And I think also, you know, part of practicing it in the right way is, is trusting in the process some, right? Because this is a long-term thing. It takes a while to um, work through or to help your dog overcome separation anxiety. And so there's going to be variability and fluctuations, and that's a normal part of the process. But if you give up, the first time you hit a blip or a variation or a struggle or a, you know, whatever, then you haven't given um, the process enough time to work. Um, so I, you know, I know it's discouraging when you've been doing really well and then all of a sudden your dog um, struggles on an exercise and particularly when you, you don't know why, but um, you know, if we stop there, then we don't have the opportunity to push beyond, beyond that and, and further increase that um, consistency and duration that you're going after. So, but that's, that's where the process really comes into itself though, isn't it? Where it comes into its own is on particularly on those days where you've had a bad day and you're really feeling disheartened and you think it's never going to work is as long as you stick to the process and as long as you look at that mm -hmm. exercise and go, okay, that one was too difficult. We'll do another one tomorrow. We'll make it easier. We'll make sure that the dog can, we'll set the dog up for success. We'll make sure that we do a good exercise. And then you're back in the process again and then you can rattle mm -hmm. on. And, it, and, you know, no matter how many blips you get or how many ups and downs, if you stick with that process, you will get where you need to be in the end, uh, regardless exactly. of how, how, bad the, how bad some of the exercises are. Right. And so what I try to, to encourage my clients to do is to be looking at the trend line as, a, as opposed to each exercise, like looking at the trend line will help you see, yes, over time, my dog is doing better. Um, and, and, and if they're not, then you, you know, seriously need to tweak, tweak the training. Um, yeah. So that was another episode of Tales from the Dog House, Separation Anxiety Explained. And I think we basically covered there that in order to get to a, a goal in life that you need to practice and practice and practice a little bit more. 
and follow the process and not worry when things go a little bit wrong but just keep following the process and eventually you will get to the goal in mind speaking of goals in mind uh you've been listening to me sarah mclaren from the uk from separation anxiety solutions i'm ness jones i am in australia from separation anxiety in dogs decoded and i am stacy bell in the u.s with focus fun Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you continue to join us and um, hang in there until Sarah comes back around. We have some exciting guests coming your way. Next next week, we've got a very exciting guest. Um, So please tune in and continue to do that. And um, bye. (laughs) Bye. Thank you.